You're listening to Redeeming Grace Audio. For more resources or messages, check out redeeminggracecc.com. Imagine, if you will, with me this morning, that it's, let's call it 6.45 on a Thursday evening, and you're home from work or school or all the day's errands seem to be over, and you're just kind of getting into the flow of your evening. So maybe you're watching your favorite show, maybe you're catching a game, although it's summer and that means it's baseball season and you know, <sighs> boring. So maybe you're not doing that because why would anyone want to watch baseball? But maybe you're cleaning up from dinner, maybe you're reading your favorite book, you're just in the middle of your evening activities and then you hear somebody knocks on your door. That's weird. So maybe you can pull out your phone and check your little app with your doorbell camera and see who's out there. Maybe you're a little more old school and you got the peephole in your door and you look through and try to see who's out there. Or maybe you use my favorite method where you go near the blinds that are closest to the door but offset at an angle and you try to position yourself where you're just close enough to where you can see through the little holes where the string comes through but not too close where your silhouette would come through or you move the blinds so that people know that you're there so you can get a good look at who might be on the other side. And you see somebody standing there Looks like a nice enough guy, just your normal everyday guy. So you think, I'm going to go open the door and, and see what he needs. But then you catch a glimmer, like a sun ray beaming through, and you think, huh, I wonder what that was. And you ask yourself, self, what was that shine that I just saw? And so you look a little more closely, and you realize that in his right hand, this gentleman is holding a four-foot sword. And at that moment, I've never been in this situation before, but I imagine there are two options. The first is you think, I'm just going to open the door because clearly, obviously, he's just a good old-fashioned local door-to-door sword salesman, and I've been needing to pick up a new katana. Or you could have the thought of, I need to immediately call the police and run out the back door because obviously, if someone shows up at my door with a sword in their hand, good things are not about to happen because when someone shows up at your door, just some life advice from your pastor today, when someone shows up at your door with the sword in their hand, they don't mean for good things to take place. It should cause a little bit of fear. And so the church at Pergamum needs to have a little bit of fear because that's how Jesus rolls up to their door. In fact, he addresses his letter to them saying the words who has the sharp two-edged sword. And in the letter to the church at Pergamum today, we see a powerful and fearsome image of Jesus coming to a church that's fallen away from the truth and exchanged it for a lie. And so as we continue looking through these letters to the churches as our introduction to the book of Revelation, we're going to look at the church at Pergamum. And we're going to see some things that we should model as a church, that all followers of Christ and all churches should model as well. But also, we're going to receive a pretty severe warning through the example of these Christians living in this ancient city who have taken the goodness of a life following Christ and exchanged it for sinfulness and in turn idolatry. And we need to pay attention. And we need to make sure that these things don't become true of us as well. And so our text this morning comes from Revelation chapter 2, verses 12 through 17. It says, And to the angel of the church at Pergamum write the words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. Yet you hold fast to my name 
and you did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold to the teaching of Balaam who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food, sacrifice to idols, and practice sexual immorality. So also you have some who hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Therefore, repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna. I will give him a white stone and a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. May God add his blessing and his favor to the reading of his word. Thanks be to God for his word. Father God, it's amazing to see not only the power of Christ, but also the severity with which he deals with sin in the life of the church. And God, the reality is no matter how hard we hold fast to truth, no matter how hard we hold fast to our faith, sin has this incredible way of creeping in, taking us off the path where you're leading us and pulling our attention and our affections away from you. And so God, we are thankful for the example of the Christians in Pergamum, both in the positive and in the negative. Help us to emulate the places where they follow after you and help us to find a warning in the places where they don't. And teach us to be a church that not only follows after truth, not only clings to your name, but also holds fast to righteousness, living lives that honor and glorify you and keeping our lives shielded from the things that would draw us away. And God, we ask all of these things in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. Like I said, there were some things going well in the church in the city of Pergamum. And one of those things had a lot to do with where they lived. This letter begins with Jesus saying, I know where you dwell. And place can be something that we often take for granted, that we don't think too hard about. Now, maybe if you have aspirations to live somewhere, you have a dream location that you would like to move to one day, or maybe you found it. If it's Loganville, that's odd, but welcome. I'm glad you've arrived at your dream home. But usually, unless it's some sort of a location where we would like to be, we often think about the place where we live and the place where we find ourselves as just coincidental at best. That this is where I was born, or this is where my family lives, or this is where my job is, or this is the place where I want to raise my children, but this is just the place where life happens, and place and location is just a means to an end. But as we see here, and really all throughout Scripture, location matters to God. Location should matter to us. That if you're a follower of Christ, you don't find yourself where you are by accident or coincidence, but God places us in the places where we live, in the places where we work, in the places where we move for a purpose and a reason as long as we find ourselves there. And Jesus affirms this here in this passage. He says, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. 
that does not sound like an ideal location. That's not how you would want your location to be described by God. He's like, I know where you live. I know the city in which you dwell. And that's the place where Satan's throne is. And what we can learn from that about Pergamum, about this city, is that it's a city desperate to worship something. It's a city filled with people who are ready to worship anyone and anything, like a lot of these ancient cities where the churches were beginning to grow up. Inside of Pergamum alone, there were temples to Augustus, to the goddess Roma, to Asclepios, the god of healing, and there was also a large altar dedicated to Zeus. But not only that, it was mandatory in a lot of these Asian cities and places for the worship of the Roman emperor. And so they were surrounded by all of these different gods and all of these different deities, all of these different temples, and all of these different authors. And so you have to be pretty pagan, pretty widespread in your worship for Jesus to look at a city and call it the place where Satan's throne is. But also, if we look carefully at what's going on there, we find out that these clearly weren't the peaceful coexist kind of pagans. Because it says, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, yet you hold fast to my name. You did not deny my faith. Even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. And so not only were these Christians surrounded by the allure of paganism and by the allure of Roman nationalism, but they were living in an environment where not only was their freedom at risk, but their very lives were. And Jesus says, you know, my boy Antipas, this guy who was a faithful witness for me, he was in your midst, he was a part of your congregation. You were living in the days of this man who was following after me, and because of his faith, because of his worship of Jesus, he was killed, his life taken away by the people around him, all because he trusted in Jesus. And because of all of those things, it would be easy for the Christians in Pergamum to say, you know what, that's it. It was already hard enough when all of our friends and family are worshiping all these other deities and they're worshiping the state and the emperor and they're pulled in all these different directions. That was hard enough, but now Antipas is dead because of it. And what if that happens to us as well? It was a window. They could have taken it and gotten away and just fallen in line with the rest of society and the rest of the culture of their city, but they didn't. Jesus says, yet you hold fast my name and you did not deny my faith. And I love the twofold nature of this commendation that Jesus gives the church at Pergamum. The first thing there, he says, you hold fast to my name. And I wonder how often we neglect the name of Jesus. And by that, I don't mean how often we neglect to use it, because especially in a church service on a Sunday morning, you're gonna hear the name of Jesus a lot. You may read scripture with the name of Jesus in it. You may pray the name of Jesus. You may sing songs with the name of Jesus in it. But how often do we just use the name of Jesus like it's any other name? just putting it out in the ether, calling Jesus by his formal name with a capital J, but using it just as a way to communicate, forgetting that scripture over and over and over again teaches us that there is power in the name of Jesus. You see, there were a lot of other names in the city of Pergamum. 
names that promised a lot of things. One of those deities was a God who believed they could heal the people. And so they could say, well, I'm going to worship this God because there's healing here. Or I'm going to worship Zeus because I've been taught that he's this all-powerful, all-governing God, and so I want to put my eggs in that basket. Or I'm going to worship the emperor because I know what the emperor can do. And maybe if we worship the emperor, then he'll have some, some passion for our city and he'll help us grow in wealth and prosperity. We can cling on to all these other names because there's a promise behind each of those names. But the Christians in the city of Pergamum, they knew a better name, a better name than the name of the emperors, a better name than the name of the Roman gods and deities and prophets than the Greek gods and deities and prophets. They heard all of those names and they say, those names are meaningless compared to the name of Jesus, the name that holds true power. And as we look through scripture, we see testimony after testimony after testimony that the name of Jesus is not just a name. It's not something that we just call out, but in the name of Jesus itself, there is power. Not only is Jesus as big and awesome and wonderful as we saw in Revelation chapter one, but just the mention of his name brings power and authority with it. And that starts with Jesus teaching us that very thing. But let's look at some of these passages and, and buckle up. We're going to go through a bunch of them real quick. In Matthew 18, 20, Jesus says, wherever two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them. In Mark 16, 17 and 18, Jesus says, and these signs will accompany those who believe. Listen, in my name, this is what can happen for those who trust in Christ and hold fast to his name. He says, in my name, they'll cast out demons. They'll speak in new tongues. They'll pick up serpents with their hands. And if they drink any deadly poison, it will not hurt them. They'll lay their hands on their sick and they'll recover. In John, Jesus echoes the same sentiment that he does in 14, 13, and 14 over and over and over again over the course of about three chapters, saying, whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask anything in my name, I'll do it. In Acts 21, as Paul is responding to people who are broken over his imprisonment. He says, what are you doing? Weeping and breaking my heart. For I'm not only ready to be in prison, but even to die in Jerusalem. And why is he willing to die in Jerusalem? He says, for the name of the Lord Jesus. Paul says, for Jesus' name alone, I'm willing to be in prison and even lose my life because he knew the power that the name of Jesus has. As Peter is preaching the gospel in Acts 2, he says, repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. As Peter approaches a man who was begging because he had a physical ailment that kept him from walking, the man asks him for money and Peter says, I have no silver or gold, but what I do have, I give you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, get up and walk. Paul in 1 Corinthians says, I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, by the name of our Lord Jesus, that all of you agree and there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. Paul says that in the name of Christ, people can be brought together in unity and harmony. Again, in 1 Corinthians, he says, and such were some of you broken and fallen in sin. This is what he's referencing there. 
You were washed and you were sanctified and you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the spirit of our God, just by the name of Jesus, we're transformed from the inside out. And then in Philippians, Paul tells us that God highly exalted Christ and bestowed on him a name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is the Lord to the glory of God the Father. And the church at Pergamum says that's the Jesus that we believe in. Not only is Jesus that powerful and that awesome, but simply the name of Christ is worth losing everything that we have for. The name of Christ is worthy of being partners in death with our friend Antipas, that we are willing to lose everything for the cause of Christ because we know that in the name of Jesus, there's power beyond belief. And I wonder for all of us here today, do we believe that there's power in the name of Jesus? It's not rhetorical. Do we believe that there's power in the name of Jesus? Talk to me. Do you believe that there's power in the name of Jesus? Yes, we absolutely should. Because that's the Jesus that we serve. And in his name, we are made whole. We are made new. We are saved by his grace. And we are fitted for eternity. The devotion that this church had to the name of Jesus is what enabled them to hold fast to the faith of Jesus. Even while someone was put to death for their faith, these people said, you know what? Whatever I endure for the name of Christ is worth it, and so I'm going to walk in my faith. I'm going to step into the unknown. I am going to keep pursuing Christ, even when everything around me is trying to pull me away from it, even willing to kill me for my faith. I am going to walk down that road. I am going to follow Christ. I am going to pursue Christ. And I am going to live out my faith in the name of Jesus by practicing my faith in front of a world that wants it shut down. We live in a world a lot like Pergamum where there are a lot of other names and a lot of other faiths trying to draw our attentions and our affections, trying to motivate us either by love or by fear or by uncertainty to come away from Jesus into something else. And we need to be constantly preaching that truth to ourselves and one another that there is no other name like the name of Jesus. There's no other name that can take dead and broken sinners and make them alive simply by a word that takes us even though we have no good works to offer for the glory of God and says, you know what? Even though you don't have anything good of your own, you have my name and that's enough. And now you are made whole and made new sons and daughters of God. It's the name of Jesus that gives us a new name, that gives us the name of Christians that allows us to be in this close, beautiful relationship with Christ. It's the name of Jesus that saves us from the inside out, restores us and renews us, and is putting us on a track towards eternity with Christ. So we need to hold fast to that name. Let's not take it for granted. Let's not treat it like any other proper noun, but recognizing that in the name of Jesus, there is power. And when we call out to Christ in his name, the fullness of God is working in and through him to accomplish his glory and working for the good of his people. And as we hold fast to his name, let that motivate us to hold fast to the faith, to walk in our trust of God and who he is, to go where he calls us to go and live how he calls us to live. So we can monitor, we can model that from Pergamum 
and take that as an example to hold fast to. But then there's the other side of what's going on in the church at Pergamum. And Jesus says, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, yet you hold fast to my name and you did not deny my faith. Even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness who was killed among you where Satan dwells, that is amazing. But I have a few things against you. And he says, you have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel that they might eat food, sacrifice to idols, and practice sexual immorality. Now, very early on, I told you, as we're prepping for the book of Revelation because it's a little mysterious and, and kind of can feel heavy as we move into studying Revelation and we start looking in all different directions to kind of give us some guidance and counsel, if you're going to have some complimentary reading to go along with the book of Revelation, it's not your favorite news channel, it's not your favorite newspaper, it's not your favorite social media outlets where you're looking and trying to draw all of these current issues into the book of Revelation. The most helpful companion readership to the book of Revelation is the Old Testament. Because all that John is doing here is coded and immersed in the beauty of the Old Testament narrative. He's writing to people that would have been raised up under these teachings. And so he's drawing these illusions that the people would have recognized and understood because he's saying it's all there. I'm just unpacking and describing some things that are there from Genesis to Malachi. And this is one of those instances. Because by the time that this letter is going out to the church, Balaam has been dead for a very, very, very long time. And so what's happening here is the people aren't actually following what happened with Balaam, but he's saying you are walking in the same footsteps as Balaam and the people of Israel all the way back in the book of Numbers. And Balaam's story is an interesting one because he was a bit of a prophet for hire. And so the king of the Moabites hires Balaam to come and to curse the Israelites, to curse the Hebrew people. And as Balaam is on his way to do this, God stops him in his track through an, a weird and supernatural thing that happens. And so Balaam walks away from that saying, you know what? I can't do it. I can't. In fact, not only am I not going to curse the people of Israel, but I'm going to bless them. And he starts to bless them. And the people of Israel are like, that's cool. And they start to like Balaam. And Balaam likes being liked. And so he's like, I'm going to do it again. And I'm going to do it again. And he starts throwing out blessings all over the place for the people of Israel. And they like Balaam and he likes them. But then the king of the Moabites comes and says, hey, man, I'd still really like you to curse them. And in fact, I will give you a lot of cash if you curse these people. And Balaam has this, this ethical prophetic quandary. He's like, man, I like money, but also I'm kind of scared of God because he made my donkey talk to me. And so I think I'm going to just kind of go with God. And so he comes out of the king of Moab and he says, listen, Balak, I can't do that. I can't speak against what God has told me to say. I can't say things God hasn't said. I can't not say God, things that God has said. I just can't do that. But as I mentioned earlier to myself that I will now mention to you, I also like money. And so if you'd like to give me some money, then I'll tell you how you can cause them to stumble without me cursing them because I don't even need to go that far. This so is what you do. You take some of your women for hire and you send them in and they'll come in and those men are going to like those women and they're going to bring them in and they're going to start to participate in this sexual promiscuity. And then those women are going to start to introduce them to your gods and the things that you love. 
And it's going to turn the people away from their trust in their God. It's going to turn his favor against them, and it's going to cause them to fall, and you can do whatever you want. Fast forward to Pergamum. The city of Pergamum and the Christians there, they had been so faithful against these outside attacks. But now Jesus is saying, nope, there's a problem here. Some of you have fallen into the teaching of these Nicolaitans who are coming in and teaching you things that aren't true. You've fallen into a trap. And the Nicolaitans, we don't know a whole lot about them other than they were a group of people confessing and professing to be Christians who weren't exactly on board with what it meant to be a Christian. And we've talked about the fact that throughout all of Christian history, as early as the church existed, there were people coming in, dressed up like Christians, speaking like Christians, saying things that sounded kind of Christian, but then teaching people to fall away from what it really means to follow Jesus. And so this Nicolaitan cult, this Nicolaitan sect was coming in and they were teaching the people of God that they didn't have to follow any sort of Christian biblical sexual ethic, but was leading the people into sexual immorality inside the church. And the people of Pergamum had been so on guard against the obvious outside threats and attacks on their faith that they'd relaxed their discernment against the less obvious threats from within. And that's where the comparison comes with Balaam. Balaam came in and he had ingratiated himself with the people of God. They, they brought him in. He was speaking literally on behalf of God to the people of God. And so they had gotten so comfortable with Balaam and he knew them so well that he knew exactly where to hit them. And he told Balak, all you got to do is introduce something that's going to take their eyes away from God. And so that's what they do. And then in Numbers chapter 25, this is the result. It says, while Israel lived in Shittim, the people began to whore with the daughters of Moab. These invited the people to the sacrifices of their gods. And the people ate and bowed down to their gods. And so what started with just deviating from how God had told them to live, to be careful of those who were coming in trying to lead them astray through this backdoor channel of appealing to their sexual interests. All of these people started engaging in this sin, and through that sin, there was an opening for idolatry to start sneaking in to the point where the people of God, who were so steadfast in their faith that the king of Moab was scared of them, and wanted a prophet to curse them to stop who they were and what they were doing. These people who had been that kind of people were now eating food, sacrificed to idols, and bowing down to other gods that they knew not to be true. And what I think we need to pay attention to here in this story is that very rarely the people who are walking with Jesus people who are steadfast, holding fast to the name of Jesus, holding fast to the faith. Very rarely do people that are on that kind of track just look around at all the other things in the world and say, you know what? I think I'm gonna drop this Jesus thing and just move on to something else now. Because when people are following after Christ wholeheartedly, that's a track that just leads forward. But what tends to happen more often than not for people that are actively following Jesus, for churches that are actively following Jesus, what happens is some sort of temptation and sin works its way in that grabs our attention a little bit, pulls our attention from Christ, and then begins to work from the inside out to destroy the relationship that we have with Jesus. In the life of a healthy church that follows after Christ, immorality leads to idolatry. We start to fall into sin and temptation 
And that turns into a love of our vices and our sin. We start worshiping our vices and our sin, and then those open the door to full-blown idolatry. That's why the Bible calls these kind of false teachers wolves in sheep's clothing. It looks like Jesus. It sounds like Christianity, but it's not. And again, it throws us back to the Old Testament with a snake in the garden who was comfortable and the people were comfortable in this environment. And he looks at the woman and says, did God really say that? I mean, I know God said some things, but did God really say that? And these Nicolaitans were coming in. They're like, no, we love Jesus too, man. But I mean, this is a little strict. (laughs) Do we really care about how we live and the things that we do and and all the, because does God really care? You're doing well. You're holding fast to the faith. A guy was killed here and you're still professing to be Christians. You're doing okay. It doesn't really matter how you act or how you live or what you do. These things really aren't that bad because you've got your mindset right. And it was easy to make excuses and allowances, but before they knew it, this false teaching had come in and the sinfulness had come into the church and it had taken their love and their devotion away from Christ and pointed it to something else. And we see here the importance of not only knowing sound doctrine, of not only loving others as we're called to love others, and we're going to look at that heavily next week as we talk about the church at Thyatira, but we also have to have a biblical understanding of holiness so that we can guard against sin and immorality to keep ourselves from falling into idolatry. And if we've put our faith in Christ, and we've talked about this before, Holiness is a designation, not a destination. When you put your faith in Christ, Jesus looks at you and says, because you know me in my name, you have been made holy. You are ontologically good in the eyes of God, not because of what you've done, but because I have said that it is so. But also we're told in scripture that we have a responsibility to live in a manner worthy of our calling to live in a manner worthy of our designation, to work out our salvation with fear and trembling and to use our lives to represent and honor God. But there's a difference because we pervert that and turn that into legalism. And we start looking at following the rules. We start looking at not sinning about doing the right things or not doing the right things as the end and the means in and of themselves that I I live a certain way, I act a certain way, I do certain things, I don't do certain things just because that's what I've been told not to do and so that's what it is. And that turns into callousness, apathy, sometimes even outright rejection because it's not the gospel. But Jesus says here, yes, you live in this way, you act in this way, you do these things, you follow my commandments because I said so because it is good for you, because this is who you're designed to be, and you're supposed to be reflecting my glory to the world, but also because these sins are not the big issue. These sins are the things that separate. These things are the things that cause you to look away, and as that happens, then idolatry sneaks in, and it really grabs your affection and attention, and idolatry is a lot harder to crucify than sin. And so we need to pay attention. We need to study what it means to be holy as God is holy. We need to dig into the commandments of Jesus and understand why we live, act, speak, and think in a certain way, not simply because that's what Christians do or that's how Christians are supposed to live or we're supposed to be inherently moral, but because we are the image of Jesus in the world and we are supposed to have our affections and our attention fixed on Christ and these are things that want to steal that away. But also we have to be careful and aware that if and when we do fall, because we will, 
Scripture has told us that clearly, that we are a work in progress, that we are being saved, that we are being conformed in the image of God. And there are going to be days when we mess up. There are going to be days when we sin. There are going to be days when we believe the lies inwardly and outwardly practicing sin. And when that happens, we need to answer the commandment of verse 14 when Jesus says, therefore, repent. And we need to be people steadfast in repentance, constantly putting our attention back towards Christ, rejecting what leads us away from him and clinging on to what brings us closer. Because if not, then comes the rest of verse 16. He says, if not, I will come to you and war against them with the sword of my mouth. And again, this sounds a lot like the Old Testament. And in the book of Joshua, as the people are coming from Egypt into the promised land, we see a list of the battles that they went through as they travel from city to city. And this isn't a military record of Israel's triumphs. This is a spiritual record of God moving on behalf of his people. Because the battles that they won weren't because they were a particularly military-minded people. In fact, some of the battles that they won, they never even took up a weapon, but we see this beautiful picture of God and his hand moving before the people and fighting the battles for the people. So in some cases, they literally got there and the battle was already over. But when they started to sin, when they started to rebel, when they started to look away, not only did God remove his hand of protection from his people, but we see in the book of Joshua at times where God takes his hand and turns it against his people. And that's what's happening, or at least what's being threatened here in verse 16. Jesus says, I'm going to come and war against them with the sword of my mouth. And there's that sword image. I think it's incredibly important there that Jesus says with the sword of my mouth. Because as we read in our early reading today, as Paul goes through the armor of God, the only offensive weapon in that entire armor is the sword that is the spirit and the word of God. We see in the book of Hebrews, the word of God is sharper than every two-edged sword, that it cuts us open and leaves us exposed for all to be seen, that it cuts us down to the point of joint and marriage, the place where soul and spirit meet, that it takes all the way down through all the garbage, through all the lies, through all of the junk, it pulls it back and reveals everything for what it is. And Jesus says, I'm gonna come with my truth and I'm gonna cut to the core of the lies and you're gonna see all of this for what it really is. And as we see this language where Jesus says, I'm going to make war with them, we should pay attention to that and recognize that the harshness with which Jesus reacts to this issue should help us to understand how truly damaging that not only false doctrine is in the life of the church, but how damaging immorality and sin can be not only individually, but to church as a whole. So we need to read this warning and find that, that daily desire to cling to not only truth, but also to righteousness. To not only good theology and sound doctrine, to not only loving our neighbors as ourselves and being active and caring for those all around us, but also to care for ourselves spiritually and physically and mentally and be sure that we don't fall into sin individually or as a church so that we don't bring that kind of judgment on us as a church the way that the church at Pergamum does. But not everyone there was falling into this. And not everyone who reads this passage is going to fall into the same end as Pergamum. 
And in verse 17, Jesus speaks to all the rest. He says, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I'll give some hidden manna. And I'll give him a white stone and a new name written on it that no one knows except the one who receives it. Now, admittedly, this is probably the most cryptic of the things that Jesus says was a reward from enduring till the end. Because we've seen things like eating from the tree of life in the paradise of God. That sounds amazing and awesome. Who won't be hurt by the second death. That sounds wonderful and overwhelming and beautiful. We see all these incredible things that Jesus has promised so far. And we'll see all these others. And with this one, it feels weird. Like we're going to get some secret bread and a rock and a name. That doesn't seem that awesome or exciting. But when we think about the meaning of this, when Jesus says, I'm going to give you hidden manna, it's another Old Testament reference. So if I haven't made the case yet, Old Testament, really helpful with Revelation. But in the Ark of the Covenant, there was some manna from the wilderness that they put inside of the Ark of the Covenant, and it was sealed up. And as you know, when people were around the Ark of the Covenant, it was serious business because that's where the presence of God dwelt. And if you treated it poorly or even handled it out of context, then you would lose your life. It was serious business, and it was unapproachable. And it found its resting place in the Holy of Holies where nobody could go except one priest one time a year through a process that was painstaking and overwhelming. And so this manna that was inside the box was not approachable by any random person. But Jesus says, if you conquer to the end, I'm opening that ark up and I'm giving you what's inside. You're going to have the full access into the presence of God, and you're not going to eat before idols. You are going to eat in the presence of God for all of eternity, and it's going to belong to you. He says, I'm going to give you a white stone, which is an ancient version of a trophy. He says, this is what was given to victors in races and competitions. He says, I'm going to give you this, this victorious stone, this trophy that shows that you made it. And you didn't accomplish it by your own efforts or by your own will. But this is a stone that I won on your behalf. And I'm going to put it in your hands. And you're going to receive a reward for something that you didn't even accomplish. And I'm going to write on it a name for you. But it's a new name. And we see this beautiful picture of Jesus completing the process of making us new. When we put our faith in Christ, we're a new creation. The old is past and the new has come, but the new is being refined and defined each and every day as we grow closer to Jesus. But one day we're going to stand in the presence of God and we're going to come to him and say, I was faithful to the end. And he's going to say, well done, come into my kingdom. Oh, and by the way, here's who you really are. From the inside out. He's going to make us full and complete and perfect and holy in every way, shape, form, or fashion. And he's going to say to us, you know what? I know who you were there. I know the things that you did and the things that you thought. I know the reputation that you had for a better part of your life. I know how some people thought of you, but let me tell you who you really are. And I'm going to give you a name that is brand new because you will be made new in my presence. So that's a pretty good reward but it's a hard calling to get there. So hold fast to the name of Jesus. Recognize that there is power in the name of Jesus, that there is nothing that can, can even come close in comparing to the name of Christ. And so hold fast to that above all else. 
Hold fast to the faith of Jesus that calls us to follow in his footsteps, to take up our cross daily and follow after him, to go through the ups and the downs, the valleys and the hills, to even go as we saw, if it's necessary, to suffer unto death, like Jesus called the church at Smyrna saying, I am willing to follow you wherever you go and live in faith and ride in faith because I know the promises that you have for me. And as you do that, as you fight against the names that are calling for your attention, as you're fighting against the things that are trying to draw you away from Christ, be careful to look within. Not only inside the church, but inside of our own hearts as we have this desire inside us saying, you know what? Did God really say that? Does it really matter if you do this? Does it really matter if you live this way? Does it really matter if you deviate off the course? Isn't it enough to just believe in Jesus and love people and and do the right things as much as you can? Is it really going to be a big deal if you fall into sin? We need to start looking at sin as literally our enemy trying to pull us away, not only from Christ, not only from community in the church, but trying to keep us from receiving that reward that Christ has promised us. So we need to learn This Pergamum got half right to hold fast to our faith, to our Jesus, and also to the righteousness that he gave us freely, that he's called us to be good stewards of by keeping his commandments, obeying what he's called us to do, and living in radical faith, going where he sends us whenever he sends us, and bearing the name of Christ to the best of our ability until he makes everything right, everything new, and gives us that new name for all eternity. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for all that you've done for us. And it is so evident here that you have to do all of it for us because we are so inclined towards sin and shame and brokenness and all of these things. Not only are we looking for other things to worship God, but we're looking for things inside of us to fill some need that we feel like we have that we don't trust you to provide. And so God, protect us. As Jesus taught us to pray, protect us from temptation. Protect us from evil. Protect us from the sin and the immorality that's calling us to live in a way counter to who you've made us. And that it's destined to lead us into following after something that's not you. God, as we fight those things, help us to hold fast to your name, realizing that we're not keeping the rules just because that's something that we should do. That we're not abstaining from things simply because that's not how Christians are supposed to act, but that everything that we do is out of a passion to hold fast to your name and your faith. And help us to reflect the image of Christ in all that we do until the day when we can put down our labors and take up our victory that was won by Christ. We ask all these things in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. Well, just as we confess our sin, we also confess our faith. And our confession comes directly from Scripture and teaches us about the power and the nature of Christ. And so as we read this, as we read these characteristics and attributes of Jesus together, I want you to think about that as we talk about his name and realize that when we speak the name of Jesus, this is what we're speaking. And this is what we're holding fast to as we continue in his faith. And so let's read this together, saying, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. 
For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. Whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Amen. Father God, we thank you and we praise you for the constant provision that you give us each day. And even though we can never repay you, we give these tithes and offerings back to you. And we ask that you bless this offering, multiply it, and use it for your glory, as well as the work of our church and the good of our neighbors. And we ask all these things in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. At this time, we're going to continue in worship by taking our tithes.